What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. So far this season, we've heard about Monoman wild rice suing the Department of Natural Resources in Minnesota, the Disney ski resort that got U.S. judges and lawyers thinking about rights of nature, a cloud forest beating back a mining company in Ecuador, and the Tuhoi homeland Te Urawera being granted legal personhood in New Zealand. Today, we're headed back to the Midwest, where a surprising fight has been brewing in an unlikely place, the Rust Belt. It began way back in 2014 with a crisis. For the second straight day, 400,000 people in and near Toledo, Ohio, are being told not to drink the tap water. I got involved in this work after the water crisis of 2014 in Toledo, where we lost access to drinkable, touchable water for three days due to a toxic algal bloom in the western basin of Lake Erie. This is Marky Miller, who had just left her environmental studies master's program feeling totally disillusioned when her city's water supply was deemed too toxic to drink. I was coming out of an environmental studies graduate program that I had walked away from because I felt really disconnected from the environmental movement, where I, I felt like we were being told look at all these problems, and there were pretty clear connections to the regulatory system that we had. And here's five decades of environmental work that's been done, and things are getting worse. And at the end of the day, being told, okay, you just went out and and protested this agency for some, you know, injection well permit, Now you're going to intern with that same agency, and that's your future. The Toledo water crisis motivated Miller to look for a different way to tackle environmental problems. I was walking out of this grad program thinking I had failed the environmental movement and feeling really disillusioned by it and went home. And then this water crisis happened, and it was like, this is my second chance to get involved, do things differently And, you know, the more you get involved, it was a lot of censorship. It was, we're not going to talk about what caused the water crisis. We're not going to entertain questions pertaining to why this happened, how this happened. We're only going to look forward and we're only going to talk about how to have awareness around it, how to have early detection. And that just really made me so angry that I stopped going to public meetings and started going to citizen-led meetings. Some of those fellow citizens of Toledo happened to attend a lecture about rights of nature around this time. And for Miller, when she heard about it, she felt like this was the exact kind of approach she'd been looking for. People from Toledo, people from Seldef went to a little bar down the street. Seldef is the Community Environmental Legal Defense Fund. The Lake Erie Bill of Rights was born on a cocktail napkin. You know, it was born out of frustration of people seeing a a year or two of total inaction, of blaming the weather, (laughs) blaming nature, saying this was inevitable, this was nothing we could have done to prevent this, um, and we're going to make sure we we give you a heads up 
next time this happens. And that wasn't a good enough response for people. So realizing that this could happen again, and we were vulnerable, we weren't ready. Uh, people in Toledo took this chance of saying, well, we if we do nothing, we're in the same position. If we put pressure, we're in the same position. So let's write our own law and let's come up with our own strategy, how we want this to be fixed, what we think needs to be said. Um, so that was sort of the, the origin of Rights of Nature in Toledo. That effort to create the Lake Erie Bill of Rights in Toledo was wildly successful, which is why it kicked off a swift and severe backlash from various industries that felt really threatened by the sea change that Rights of Nature represents. That's the story we're going to get into today. Welcome back to Damages. I'm Amy Westervelt. After the break, Rights of Nature in the Rust Belt, the backlash, and how organizers are getting around it. Stay with us. Does it make sense to you that the same company that controls half of online retail also passively eavesdrops on your private conversations at home? How about the idea that a single company controls 90% of internet searches, runs your email service, and gets to track everything you do on your smartphone. Big tech is more powerful than most countries, and they profit by exploiting your personal data. It's time to put a layer of protection between these guys and your online activity. And that's why I use ExpressVPN. Think about how much of your life is on the internet. Every site you visit, video you watch, message you send gets tracked and data mined. But when you use ExpressVPN on your devices, the software hides your IP address. That's something that big tech uses to personally identify you. So ExpressVPN makes your activity harder to trace and sell to advertisers. ExpressVPN also encrypts 100% of your internet data to keep you safe from hackers and eavesdroppers on your network. This has become sadly very important in my line of work. It's also why ExpressVPN is rated number one by CNET, Wired, Tech Radar, and a lot of other sites. What I like most about ExpressVPN is how easy it is to use. You download the app, it's very easy to install, you tap a button, and then you're protected. I like hardly even think about it anymore, and it's just working away in the background on all my devices. So stop handing over your personal data to the big tech monopoly that mines your activity and sells your information. Protect yourself with the VPN I trust to keep me safe online. Visit expressvpn.com slash drilled. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash drilled to get three extra months free. Go to expressvpn.com slash drilled right now to learn more. This holiday season, get a gift for yourself too, and keep it simple. I gave myself the gift of a better, more convenient laundry experience. I know, I know, laundry doesn't sound like a gift, but honestly, Earth Breeze just makes it so much easier. 
Think about how you actually do laundry. You have to work out how much detergent to pour, lift that big plastic jug, hope the goo doesn't get everywhere. It's annoying. But EarthBreeze Eco Sheets look like nothing I've ever seen in the detergent aisle. It's almost, it's like a dryer sheet kind of, but it's the detergent and you throw it in and then that's it. There's no measuring, no nothing. It works in hot and cold. It's also dermatologist tested, hypoallergenic, and free of bleach and dyes. And it fights everyday stains and odors. You get a powerful clean, but you don't have to deal with all that packaging. Right now, my listeners can get started with Earth Breeze and save 40%, four zero, 40%. Go to earthbreeze.com slash drilled. That's E-A-R-T-H-B-R-E-E-Z-E dot com slash drilled for 40% off your subscription. Earthbreeze.com slash drilled. really a surprise that a lot of folks in the business world see rights of nature as an existential threat. It questions something that has become fundamental to business, and particularly American business, the possession and use of land and other natural resources for profit. In the U.S., this actually goes all the way back to an ideological debate in the 1800s. We heard earlier this season about the country's move to give property owners the rights to shared resources like water and minerals, but it didn't end there. Essentially, if we want to look at the beginning of a 20th century national awareness about um, the need to protect the natural environment, we have to look at the naturalist John Muir and the forester Gifford Pinchot. Melissa Aronchik is a media studies scholar at Rutgers University and co-author of the book, A Strategic Nature, all about how Americans came to talk about the environment in the way that we do. John Muir, of course, was an early conservationist and Gifford Pinchot really saw nature as an economic resource. And we especially have to look at how they interacted because each of them came to stand for a very different idea of what nature and forests and the environment meant in the United States. You might be familiar with the name John Muir. Maybe you even own something with his famous quote, the mountains are calling and I must go. But Gifford Pinchot is less of a household name. He was the country's first forester. In the sense of somebody who was professionally trained to manage forests, to manage nature in the United States. And that's really important because it introduces the idea that nature is something that should be managed. What Muir stood for was really about protecting the natural environment. That meant creating parkland, creating forests or protecting forests and having boundaries drawn around them so that they were owned by the federal government and could not be used for any private purpose. Whereas for Pinchot, for Gifford Pinchot, uh, natural resources were just that, resources. It was lumber that Americans needed for development. Um, It was water that may be needed for serving cities that didn't have enough uh, natural water resources. And there was an economic benefit to protecting 
forests, but you had to protect them for the service of American enterprise and the American economy. Of course, a lot of this land that both Muir and Pinchot wanted the U.S. government to own for their respective reasons already belonged to someone else. Neither John Muir's nor Gifford Pinchot's visions included the indigenous people who were living on this land long before either of them came along. Um, And that's that entire story of what the indigenous uh, peoples on the land did with nature, how they viewed nature, their relationship with nature, that was completely ignored in this American story. Muir may be the name we still know today, but it's Pinchot's ideas that underpin American approaches to nature, especially when it comes to policy. A lot of states' departments of natural resources, for example, spend quite a bit of time protecting the economic use of resources. Just think back to attorney Tara Hauska's comment on the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources' stance when she and various other activists were fighting against the Line 3 pipeline in Minnesota. Minnesota's DNR was side-by-side with the police officers that were protecting Enbridge's pipeline throughout the course of the ground struggle. I think there are certain moments that really stand out when you see, like, there's a sign behind that says protected wetland that has an Enbridge symbol on it. There's a DNR officer standing in front of it, and then there's just this, like, gaping scar that's been placed into the earth right next to it clearly destroying that wetland, you know, and there's the DNR right there and telling you to step back. So, yeah, rights of nature represents a pretty big departure from business as usual, which is why so many industries, especially heavily polluting ones like the fossil fuel industry, chemicals, industrial ag, they're not taking this whole rights of nature push lying down. Oh my God, it's this Rust Belt city in the Midwest that is doing this what everyone would think it would either be like in New York or California, right? That's Tish O'Dell with the Community Environmental Legal Defense Fund, CELDEF. And the city she's talking about is Toledo, Ohio. O'Dell was at that fateful meeting in the bar where the folks from CELDEF and the activists from Toledo drafted the Lake Erie Bill of Rights on a cocktail napkin. The fact that people there in the Rust Belt and not on the coast started agitating for rights of nature really flipped a switch and activated major industry backlash. O'Dell had gotten involved with the rights of nature movement a few years before the Toledo water crisis hit when she found out that her small suburban town was being invaded by oil and gas drilling. In my community, this little suburban, you know, sleepy town, another resident was screaming at city council about poisoning her children and that they needed to stop. So I talked to her after the meeting and it evolved into me just, you know, going down the rabbit hole of learning what was oil and gas drilling, what was so bad about it, what was, you know, fracking. That was the first time I'd heard that term and became very concerned about the issue. Odell isn't the type to hear about something concerning and not try to do something about it, so she jumped right in. And we basically got the runaround from everyone that either we can't do anything about it or it's good for the economy, all different things. After going to all the existing powers that be and getting nowhere, Odell made a bold move. So at that point, when I realized we couldn't, I couldn't stop it, I ran for mayor. And I thought, well, I'm going to try and solve the problem myself. She didn't win. 
but... It was during my campaign at a local event. Someone stood up and asked me if I had ever heard of CELDEF. She hadn't heard of them, but quickly looked them up. And it wasn't long before she was working for them on another environmental crisis near her home, the Lake Erie water crisis. The lake is just about 10 miles from Odell's house. You know, that this is an ongoing problem with Lake Erie. You know, we've been using her for water, for fishing, for dumping of waste. And Lake Erie being the shallowest of the five Great Lakes, she was actually declared dead once already. And that was in the 1960s. The Cuyahoga River in Ohio is so loaded with the waste products of petroleum distillation that it is actually in danger of catching fire. Ohio's Cuyahoga River literally catching on fire during those decades, thanks to the high levels of chemicals and oil in it, actually helped to inspire the Clean Water Act. But we thought the lake was getting better for a while after all that happened in the 60s and 70s. But the pollution has just become more invisible over the years. So we don't have like, you know, oil scum floating on the surface and it's not catching on fire. And that seems to be the problem with the environmental activism in that, right? We, we seem to think at some point, oh, we won. And then we kind of like think, oh, the system is going to handle it from here on out. And that's not true. It doesn't. It just continues. In the case of Lake Erie, when the more obvious pollution went away, it was replaced by a more invisible pollution in the form of runoff from various industrial agriculture operations around the area. The chemicals in that runoff cause more algae to bloom in the lake, and the algae emits various toxins that are poisonous to people. For a long time, the algae blooms were mostly spun as a natural phenomenon because, of course, algae blooms are technically natural, but an abundance of them is not. And then in August 2014, Good afternoon, I'm Cecilia Vega at ABC News headquarters in New York with a digital special report on a major health threat in Toledo, Ohio, where there is no tap water to drink today. And they had warnings everywhere on the TV, radio, saying, do not touch the water, don't drink the water, don't do dishes, don't shower, nothing. It will make you sick. And that went on for three days at the hottest, you know, time of the year. That's when local residents like Marky Miller and Odell got involved. Like Miller, Odell was really frustrated with how various existing systems were set up to handle a situation like the Toledo water crisis. You know, you go to your electeds. First, you go to your local electeds, and then they tell you to go to the environmental protection agencies and on and on. And you do that and you figure out no one's really helping you or correcting the problem. Oh, we'll do more testing. Oh, we'll post signs earlier. Oh, we'll put more chemicals in the drinking water so it doesn't happen. But it's not really solving the problem, you know, the overall problem. What's going on? Why do we have these LGBT? blooms happening. And they knew that. It was from industrial agriculture. There'd been so much money poured into studies. Northwest Ohio is, that's a huge industry there. And it's corporate agriculture. It's not, you know, farms that put food to table kind of thing. They're growing commodities in that area. So, you know, a couple of years, people did try to work through the system there. Nothing happened. In 2015, Miller and a handful of other Toledo residents connected up with Odell and other folks from CELDAF and drafted what would become the Lake Erie Bill of Rights on a cocktail napkin in a bar. 
Those cocktail napkin notes were typed into a proper document that made some really bold declarations. Like, we the people of the city of Toledo find that laws ostensibly enacted to protect us and to foster our health, prosperity, and fundamental rights do neither. And that the very air, land, and water on which our lives and happiness depend are threatened. Thus, it has become necessary that we reclaim, reaffirm, and assert our inherent and inalienable rights and to extend legal rights to our natural environment in order to ensure that the natural world, along with our values, our interests, and our rights, are no longer subordinated to the accumulation of surplus wealth and unaccountable political power. Dang! It went on to lay out the rights the people of the city of Toledo wished to grant to Lake Erie, including the right to exist, flourish, and naturally evolve. The Lake Erie Bill of Rights included rights for the lake's human neighbors too, specifically the right to local self-governance and the right to a healthy environment. With their Bill of Rights drafted, Miller and her fellow activists set about securing local support. Here's Odell again. Of course, the first step always when you're talking about rights of nature, because it's, it's such a new concept for a lot of people, is there's a lot of education that has to happen at the front end, doing rights of nature workshops, um, trying to put together flyers and things that to educate the people in the community what this means. And so they did that. They were willing to put the work in. They drafted a proposed amendment to the city of Toledo's charter that would enshrine the Lake Erie Bill of Rights into the city's operating documents and give Toledo residents the right to protect the lake in court. In Ohio, citizens can get any proposed initiative on the ballot if they get enough signatures from residents. And by August of 2018, the Lake Erie Bill of Rights folks had collected enough signatures. But it was blocked then from going on the ballot by the county board of elections. And so the people, we had to help them sue, this, you know, and it had to go to the Supreme Court of the state to get the board of elections to put it on the ballot. Well, we at that time had, you know, there was lots of lobbyists and industry groups that filed amicus briefs in support of not putting it on the ballot. So when we think about democracy and that we think we live in a democracy, here the people followed the rules what they were supposed to. And yet industry lobby groups are influencing whether or not this can go on the ballot. And the Supreme Court actually ruled in favor of the County Board of Elections to keep it off the ballot. Miller was gutted to find that after all the careful work they'd put into getting the Lake Erie Bill of Rights on the November 2018 ballot, everything they'd done to just make sure they were on the right side of the law, cross their T's and dot their I's, that those in power could just refuse to put it on the ballot. The scrutiny that that communities have to go through with petitioning. I mean, it's like, oh, this this sentence must be in red ink on every page and everything has to be notarized and every signature must match this. Ultimately, they caught a break, not because of the court case, but because the city wanted to avoid bad PR. Citizens had proposed another ballot initiative in Toledo, one the city did want people to vote on, and they just couldn't find a way to justify letting people vote on one and not the other they couldn't figure out a way to keep it off the ballot. So that's how the Lake Erie Bill of Rights got on that special election February ballot. In February 2019, the Lake Erie Bill of Rights passed with 60% of the vote. Victory. But it was short-lived. A lawsuit has been filed against the Lake Erie Bill of Rights not even a day after it passed. A farm in Wood County filed it in federal court this morning in Toledo. 
And almost exactly a year after the bill passed, in February 2020, a judge declared the Lake Erie Bill of Rights unconstitutional. Invalid. That's the ruling on the Lake Erie Bill of Rights, a U.S. District Court judge ruling that the bill is unconstitutionally vague and an overstretch of power for municipal government. The argument was twofold. First, that because the lake's right to exist, flourish, and naturally evolved doesn't really cover specifics, like, for example, how much agricultural runoff is acceptable. Is it none, or is there some acceptable amount? Because it lacked specifics like that, the judge said this is just too vague to be considered an enforceable law. And second, that because Lake Erie spans more than one state and actually crosses the border into Canada, too, the people of Toledo can't just pass a law that extends so far beyond their jurisdictional boundary. It was a brutal defeat, but now the story was on the media's radar, not just nationally, but internationally. The Daily Show even did a whole thing on it that both Marky Miller and Tish O'Dell appeared in. So making a lake into a person is clearly a weird sex thing, but Marky and her fellow conservationists have even more selfish motivations. The toxic water situation in Ohio that prompted the governor to declare a state of emergency. Lake Erie, a major source of drinking water, serves 400,000 people. We lost access to our drinking water for three days. It impacted mm -hmm. 500,000 people. And that attention made industry nervous. Not just the local industrial farmers, but the global chemical and fossil fuel industries, too. Here's Marky Miller in that Daily Show segment again. Found out that BP was basically the sole funder of the campaign against the Lake Erie Bill of Rights. The local PBS station in the region got hold of campaign finance reports and found that supporters of the Lake Erie Bill of Rights had spent about $7,000 getting it on the ballot and rallying support for it, while opponents of the bill organized into a group called the Toledo Coalition for Jobs and Growth spent over $300,000 trying to defeat it. Funding for that coalition came almost exclusively from BP North America, which is based not in Ohio, but in Houston, Texas. Why would a multinational company headquartered nowhere near Ohio care about a municipal bill in Toledo? Well, the idea of rights of nature laws all over the world is a pretty big existential threat to oil companies, kind of the way climate change is to humans. Could they really survive if communities, rather than politicians or agencies that can be swayed by money and power, made decisions that emphasize protecting biodiversity versus profits. It's hard to imagine how. I mean, I think people had heard of some of the stuff happening in Ecuador and in New Zealand, but this was the middle of you know, Ohio, not like a bunch of hippies in San Francisco, you know? Like. We used to laugh about that. We would laugh about that. Like, oh my God, it's this Rust Belt yeah. city in the Midwest that is doing this, yeah. what everyone would think it would either be like in New York or California, right? The fact that this fringe idea took hold in Ohio, not some super liberal blue state, was a shock to the system. Which might be why, around the time the Lake Erie fight was going on, articles about how radical and fringe and terrible this idea was started to crop up in conservative media all over the country. Here's one from conservative magazine The National Review. 
Lake Erie now has rights, National Review. Score another victory for the nature rights movement. As I warned could happen, voters in Toledo just passed a law granting Lake Erie human-type rights, indeed, a bill of rights all its own. The nature rights movement is profoundly subversive, both to human exceptionalism, our liberty, and the important concept of rights, itself. Think about it. If nature has rights, that means everything does, which devalues rights just as a wild inflation deflates the worth of currency. The radicals who are leading this agenda wish to thwart capitalism and human thriving. Nature rights laws accomplish this by transforming courts into enforcers of green ideology. It's an ideological threat, and the closest environmentalists have gotten to actually changing the system that brought us the climate crisis and a whole lot of other ills in the first place. Because it provides an entirely new framework, a new value system through which to make decisions about the world we live in. People who felt threatened by such a shift couldn't just leave it at defeating the Lake Erie Bill of Rights. They started to pass preemptive laws, state laws that would ban any kind of a case being brought around rights of nature in general. And that effort, again, started in Ohio. We have a, a biannual um, budget that happens in Ohio. And so they were working on the budget bill at <laughs> the end of April, and it gets signed in May. And at the last minute, like right before it was signed, someone noticed that there was language in the budget bill that was preempting rights of nature. And we were like, what? That's Tish O'Dell again. She says when they looked into it, they discovered that this addendum to the budget, it was slipped in the night before the bill, which is hundreds of pages long, was sent to lawmakers. Here's Marky Miller. Through several information requests, eventually one of the members of the Ohio Community Rights Network found the emails between the Ohio Chamber of Commerce and one state rep saying, hey, we because of the Lake Erie Bill of Rights, even though it's past the deadline, we'd really like if you could slip this language into the budget bill. And yeah. it's like just the, the audacity of that. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce is one of the primary blockers of environmental regulation in the country and a longtime leader in the fight against climate action. State chambers of commerce often work in lockstep with the national organization. And Rights of Nature seems to have made it onto their radar. Shortly after the Ohio preemptive law passed, a remarkably similarly worded bill passed in Florida, also sponsored by that state's chamber. Another copycat bill was proposed in Missouri and reintroduced in 2021. I think we'll see much more preemption from states, you know, similar to Ohio, for instance, which made it illegal to grant nature any rights. This is Melissa Troutman, a journalist and co-founder of the investigative journalism organization Public Herald. Troutman has been covering rights of nature for years and co-directed a 2020 documentary on the subject, Invisible Hand. As this paradigm shift of a strategy to recognize the rights of nature grows more and more, the backlash from the establishment, which is the state and these huge corporate industries, the backlash will get stronger and stronger, and that will come in the form of more state and corporate preemption. 
but she doesn't think preemption will stop the rights of nature movement. Miller and Odell agree. Honestly, when you start seeing the preemption, it's really validating in a weird way. You you realize that oh, we must be pissing off the right people. In fact, it hasn't stopped organizers in Ohio really at all. Odell says there are still various rights of nature efforts underway there. We all have two choices, right, when they pass a law. We either accept it and go, well, it's the law. I guess there's nothing we can do. Or you keep challenging it and you fight still. And you go, no, I'm not going to give credibility to that law. That law is unjust. And so that's what we're seeing here in Ohio and in other places across the country. They're not giving any credibility to these, I call them illegitimate laws. Troutman points to an example in her state, Pennsylvania. Grant Township, which invoked a Pennsylvania option called Home Rule to kick the state out of its affairs and then drafted a town charter that included rights of nature. They used that charter to kick a fracking waste project out of town. And like the folks in Toledo, they've met with swift and fierce opposition. Here's Joshua Perbanic, Troutman's co-director on Invisible Hand and co-founder of Public Herald. Grant Township has another huge wall to climb. And that is that the lawsuits that came from the state and from the industry are ongoing still. And they are now facing the court battle with the state agency. Uh, And the court has allowed the state agency to partner with the oil and gas company in the case. Nothing says regulatory capture like a state and a fossil fuel company teaming up to sue a small rural town for the right to dump toxic waste there. But Probanic and Troutman find optimism in the Grant Township story. You know, Grant Township is being targeted by the state and the industry as a single community. And they're they are holding their own. They are holding out. And what happens in Grant Township affects not just what other communities in Pennsylvania end up being able to do, but also in other parts of the country as well. It is precedent setting, right? Um, But what if there were 50 communities all doing what Grant Township is doing across the state? Do you think DEP would be suing all 50 of them at the same time? Heck no. They They don't even have the resources to spend on Grant Township, let alone 50 other communities. For Odell, like Miller, the fact that more preemptive laws attempting to ban people from proposing rights of nature bills are being considered in states across the country is just proof that the concept is gaining traction. And I tell people all the time, when you're going along the right path, you can tell by the opposition's response to you how close you're getting to hitting them with something, right? Because they're not going to pass a preemptive bill that says, you know, you can't call your legislators anymore or you can't go to the, the EPA with your complaints. It certainly hasn't slowed down the momentum of the rights of nature movement. Since we started reporting this series just last year, multiple new cases have been filed and new laws have been passed. Uganda passed rights of nature for parts of the country. Panama moved to incorporate rights of nature into its constitution in February 2022. 
Chile is considering a similar move. In Washington, the Soxhuatl tribe filed the first rights of salmon case in January 2022. In New York, State Assemblyman Patrick Burke proposed a Great Lakes Bill of Rights in March 2022. Things are happening, and for Troutman, there's a sense of the inevitable about it. As for the backlash? That's really troubling to think about, but it's not going to stop the movement. It's not going to stop change. That's it for this episode and this first season. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll be continuing to put out weekly episodes for most of the year. Coming up in our next season, a look at some other big legal ideas shaking up climate action. From the new international crime of ecocide to the secret tribunals that corporations use to try to block environmental laws. We'll also be bringing you bonus episodes on other rights of nature cases and updates on the cases that we've touched on this season throughout the year. And many, many more series, including a look at fraud and liability cases and a deep dive into a fascinating case in Guyana where ExxonMobil is drilling offshore. Keep coming back for all of that. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. Damages is an original Critical Frequency production. Our senior producer and editor is Sarah Ventry. Sound design by Ray Pang. Mixing and mastering by Mark Bush. Our fact checker is Wudan Yan. Our First Amendment attorney is James Wheaton of the First Amendment Project. Our artwork is done by Matthew Fleming. The show is supported in part by a generous grant from the File Foundation. We really appreciate their support. If you want to support the show, you can do that by leaving us a rating or review wherever you're listening. That actually helps us find new listeners, get into the charts. It's a big help. And it just takes a minute. If you have an idea for an episode or feedback on anything we've done so far, you can shoot me a note at amy at criticalfrequency.org. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.